Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John with me, and we will read beginning with verse 1 down through verse 13. John 1, 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." This morning we'll examine the work of two evangelists so that we might glorify God in seeing people adopted into the family of God. Number one, John the evangelist from God who shared the true light. This is the first evangelist we're going to look at this morning. Our text says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John was Jesus' cousin. He was a Levite. He was the son of Zechariah, the temple priest, son of Elizabeth from the line of the priest Aaron. His birth was miraculous. I didn't say it was a virgin birth, but it was a miraculous birth. Luke 1.34 says, Mary said to the angel, How will this be? concerning her own pregnancy. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This was a miraculous birth, a miraculous pregnancy, the pregnancy that resulted in the life of John. That which is impossible, when it is done, is then ascribed as a miracle. That's a miracle. It's not a miracle that you got to church on time today or wherever you're trying to get on time. It's not a miracle that you got that job that you wanted for so long or that you found that spouse. That's not a miracle. Those are great things. There are many things that are great works of God, but miracles are those things that plainly defy natural reality. And you say, well, how do you, where do you get that definition? Throughout Scripture, when you see something called a miracle, it's always something that was plainly impossible, and therefore we know that God did it. So be careful that you apply the word 
miraculous or a miracle to something that's merely great. When I say merely great, I don't mean not great. I mean it is great. It's just not a miracle. So many things are called miracles today that really are not. But this was a miracle. John's birth was miraculous. But John was also sent from God. We'll talk about this more in a few weeks. But in Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 1, there's a clear prophetic expression of what would come. It is these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a way for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This was prophetic of John the Baptist coming to be one who would prepare the way for the Lord. He was teaching truth about the coming Messiah, and he was not popular for doing so. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send a messenger, and he will prepare the way for me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Then in Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John was sent from God. He wasn't some self-proclaimed evangelist who decided, I think I'm going to start a ministry. This was God's doing. God was behind it. God was the foundation of it. God was the author of it. And therefore, it was destined to succeed. Another important factor about John is that he knew his role. John knew his role. Verse 7 says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The word witness used three times. A testament a vocal expression of a reality to come. The forerunner of Christ, but not the Christ. Further in verse 19, we read, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, and they would have known that this was a reference to those Old Testament passages, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John understood his role. John didn't need to have another role. Years ago, I knew a man in the ministry who so clamored 
to have the senior pastorate role of a particular church when no one had affirmed his giftedness, that he split a church right down the middle. He left that church to do that at two more churches. He, in his mind, needed to have a giftedness that he had seen in his grandfather, wanted to be just like his grandfather, following his grandfather's steps, rather than being satisfied with the giftedness that God had given him. John was satisfied to give full vigor to his role of being a forerunner, not the one. Many times senior pastors today have to be, you know, the guy. They've got to be the central focus of the attention. I think that we've avoided that in our church. You know, there are 12 men in our church who serve as shepherds. They serve faithfully as men who are qualified to be the pillars, so to speak, to use an illustration. The pillars upon which the local church rests, as I talked about earlier, that each man would be responsible for particular souls, that every soul in our church would have a man who is above reproach, who is responsible for his or her soul. John understood that his role was a particular support role. That's really what every Christian's role is, no matter what role it is. It's a support role. There are differences of giftedness. There are teaching gifts. There are service gifts. Peter divides them into those two categories in 1 Peter 4. John understood his giftedness. He understood his role, and he loved it. He lived his life with a passion for fulfilling this role. He wasn't distracted. Did you get distracted? I, I have gotten distracted in the past. I don't much get distracted anymore. There were times in my life where I would get so distracted by whatever else that would kind of pop up. It's hard to get distracted when you're so focused. Our church has become a ministry machine such that folks understand that the better way to serve is to serve wholeheartedly and to give it your all, to enjoy the maximum benefit of maximum ministry. It's hard to get distracted when your mind is focused upon the focus of Scripture. You're dedicated to reading and taking in Scripture on a regular basis, then it's real difficult to get distracted. But if you're spending equal amount of time on social media and whatever else, that's kind of the easy target these days. Everybody is subject in some way to social media. It's not hard at all to get distracted from the primacy of Christ and the, the necessity and the joy and the beauty and the interdependence of the church. All kind of distractions out there. John was not a distracted man. He knew his role. He understood and embraced his role as the forerunner to someone else. And because that someone else was the greatest, he considered it worth giving everything in life and in death. John thought little of himself. You see this in the apostles as they grow in maturity. You see a a decrease in their sin. You know, you see the narrative texts that address certain men's and women's sins, and as you see them maturing throughout the Scripture, you see an increasing disinterest in self. John was uh, the original minimalist, living a simple life with a camel hair garment, a diet of bugs, locust, it's a bug, 
locusts and honey. But for the record, for whatever it's worth, he was not a vegetarian. No such person would wear a leather belt, in case you're wondering. In Matthew 10, 24, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. You see, this permeates the work of the body of Christ. Those who are committed to being like Christ develop a following. And that following wants to be like that person as that person is like Christ. Uh, the way Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 was, Imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Jesus goes on in that verse, Matthew 10.25, to say, If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. Uh, it's a divided house. You know, they say they're devoted, and yet wouldn't take much for someone who's committed to the house of Beelzebub to turn from them to somewhere else, as long as there's a better deal out, out there. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This falls well within the context of our text this morning with, with regard to Jesus being the light of the world. Uh, he goes on to say, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The deception of Satan is massive. And it is often nurtured in the context of darkness. The disciple's not above his teacher. He, he wants to be like his teacher. But if he's a true disciple, he's willing to expose where he's not like his teacher. He wants the darkness to be uncovered, overshadowed, so to speak, by light. He wants the light to expose what's in the darkness. But the false disciple, the false convert, he's got multiple categories of hidden places. I read an article this week about a man in Austria who had raped his daughter multiple times, kept her imprisoned in his basement for 24 years, fathered seven, actually nine children with her, two miscarriages, seven children lived, 24 years. This woman lived to be 42 until the oldest child fathered by her father became deathly ill. He agreed to take her to the hospital, and that led to things being exposed, and eventually the Authorities came in and uncovered it all, put him in prison. 24 years. I was thinking about this, and I thought, how unbearably painful would it be to undergo something like that for 30 minutes? Five minutes. One minute. And yet this man, in the fully vented expression of his total depravity covered it for two and a half decades. And the light 
was shown upon it, was uncovered, was dealt with, really well illustrates what happens in the hearts of those who hide it better. If you have multiple children, you know that you know, maybe one or more of your children hide their sin better than the others. Or if you know any number of children, if you've ever been a school teacher, you know that some are just better at hiding it. You know, I can remember my brother-in-law telling me about his two children years ago, uh, wonderful kids, but one of them was just a little more vocal. And he said about the younger one, you know, he's going to be hard for me to deal with when it comes to exposing sin because he's just such a quiet-spirited kid. He's less willing to be vocal. And that can be a real downfall. You know, for that reason, there's a sense in which when I see the, my children sinning, I'm thankful that it's taking place in my home so I can address it. I can bring light to bear upon what's really going on, and we can talk about it and you know, really try to draw out the reality of what's in the heart that led to that outward sin. You know, now I, I often, uh, you know, with the varying ages of my children, I'll get different questions or, or different responses. But, you know, there are times where when I ask the question, why did you do that? I might get, I might get this. I've gotten this. Because of sin in my heart. <laughs> well, it's true. But do you know what that means? Or, or, you know, we don't get so much of this because we try so hard to deal with it directly and honestly and faithfully and graciously and biblically. But, you know, there, there have probably been times uh, with most of my children, probably most of yours, where you'll get something like, you know, when you ask the question, why did you do that? Well, because my brother did this. Oh. Let's talk about that. But either way, there is a, a compulsion to cover sin. Not in John. John wanted his life to be exposed, John was willing to run full bore, full speed ahead because he wasn't distracted. He knew his role. He thought little of himself. Matthew 3, verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. See, that's a guy that's willing to speak the truth in love-ish. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This should be ready on your heart, on your tongue, your lips. Ready for those who claim to know Christ and clearly don't. I'm not telling you to call people a brood of vipers. That's not, you know, a good idea. John was in a particular niche. But I am telling you to say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's not a wrong thing to say. It's not offensive. It's a good thing. John says it on the heels of calling them snakes, but they were snakes. Certain people need to be called snakes, because they are. And I don't mind doing that. I don't mind calling, you know, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, you know the list, Beth Moore. I don't mind calling these people snakes, because they are really, really deceptive. There's a lot of them out there. But I don't think that's good in private conversations so much. These are public folks who have put themselves out there and proclaimed a lot of heresy. And you need to know the truth about it. And some might say, well, did you go to them privately? I don't know them, right? Why would I do that? But these folks who have said things publicly need to be addressed publicly. But for you and me in the context of knowing that there are those who claim to know Christ... 
and yet show a passionate devotion to keeping things in the dark. You know, they might say something like, well, you know, I'm just not a people person. Christians are people persons. It's the new nature. Look for the 62 or so one another's in Scripture. It's not that you owe it to others. It's that you want to serve. You want to love. You want to sacrifice. You want to encourage. You even want to correct because you love people, because Christ loves you, and therefore you love those who are in the body. John goes on there to say in verse 9, and do not presume, after he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Just because you're of the Jewish bloodline, that's what he was saying to them. Don't presume to say that. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You troubled about that soul that you know who professes to be a Christian? Maybe it's you. There's no real fruit. The fruit in your life is dead fruit. That's a term used in Scripture. Dead fruit, meaning that it doesn't have life. It's not nutritious. It's not helping anyone. It's not glorifying Christ. It's just lip service or eye service. You're just kind of doing what you're doing, kind of going through the motions because you know that these activities are things that people in Christ do. And so you try to keep up with other Christians who are doing these things, but there's no life involved. There's no vigor. There's no sacrifice. There's no love. There's no joy. John's calling these guys out. He can. He can because he's an evangelist from God who shares the true light. He has to. Well, John was also a Baptist. And I'm not talking about being part of the Baptist denominations. There are many Baptist denominations, and I'm not talking about any of those. But he was a Baptist. What do we mean by that? Well, Matthew 3.13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. That's the main thing we're talking about here when we call John the Baptist. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. They were fulfilling the prophecy of Scripture. They were fulfilling righteousness, that which God in his righteousness had had declared necessarily to need to come to pass. Well, John died for Christ. He considered it better to glorify Christ than to keep his life such that he was willing to confront King Herod for his adultery with his brother Philip's wife. The result was that she eventually manipulated her daughter and King Herod, resulting in John's beheading, Mark 6. 
I'd say immeasurably more important than John having died for Christ was that John lived for Christ. John 3.25 says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In these words, he must increase. And I must decrease. You could say there was nothing in John about John. John wanted Christ to increase. John wanted Christ to be on display, the true Christ. He didn't want to just pretend that he was in Christ or loved Christ or was a Christian. John really, genuinely wanted to decrease so that Christ would increase. He was willing to fully and quickly say, I'm not the Christ. I'm the forerunner of the Christ. I came to declare his message. I came to declare his coming. I came to make way for him. That's what my life is about, John would say. John had a temporary earthly involvement in a permanent eternal ministry. He was an evangelist. Now, don't confuse John the Baptist, the evangelist, with John the Apostle, the evangelist. Often, John the Apostle is called John the Evangelist. You know that's not who we're talking about. John the Apostle is known as the Apostle of Love. But John the Baptist, we see in narrative expression as a true evangelist, one who was willing to point people to the person of Christ. We'll see this throughout chapter 1, a number of titles that we'll give to Jesus as we go that we pull from Scripture. Last week we said Jesus is God. This week we're saying that Jesus is light. Scripture says those things, and it'll say a number of things in here in chapter 1, and we'll title those messages with those descriptions so that you can kind of mark them in your memory and come back to them, and you might point others to them, that you would point to those who would say, Jesus isn't God. Let me let you listen to a message I heard a few weeks ago. Jesus is the light. What does that mean? Well, here's a message you can listen to that will help you with that. As I said, John had a temporary earthly ministry and a permanent eternal ministry. John was the evangelist from God who shared the true light. Jesus has a permanent eternal involvement in a permanent eternal ministry. Jesus, number two, is the God of evangelism who is the true light. Now, I don't have to go back over how we know that Jesus is, in fact, the second person of the Trinity in eternity past. We went over that lengthily last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to that. We walked through the doctrine of Christology last week, pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ. And in many senses, the book of John is about the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But here in verse 9, John says, the true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It gives light to everyone. What does that mean? Does that mean that everyone will embrace the light, that everyone will have light in such a way that what's exposed in the light, that they'll embrace what's in the light? Well, obviously not. We would call that universalism. And if you believe that, you're a universalist. The idea that Jesus died for everybody, everybody comes to know Christ as a result of the fact that he died for them all, and we'll see them all in heaven, it'll all be fine. So don't be too concerned about telling people the truth about what Scripture says or anything else. Don't be concerned about warning people of suffering to come. Don't be concerned about telling people about repentance for sin. You know, don't get involved in those things that are so offensive because the light came to all men. Therefore, they all have the necessary information. Well, the reality is that, much like we talked about a moment ago, there are those who, when exposed to the light, reject the light. Now, it's obvious who some of those folks are, but in some cases, it's not so obvious. Why? Because they cover themselves with darkness and go into the light. They insulate themselves from the light by maintaining a dark, private life. Refusal to acknowledge, confess, repent of particular hidden sinful patterns. Don't really want them addressed. So they'll cover themselves in a cloak of darkness, walk into a context where light is constantly shed and therefore protect themselves from the accountability that comes from being exposed to that light. Jesus' life and ministry provided adequate light in the midst of darkness for mankind to know the difference. Jesus drew the attention of all men with his miracles, but it was his sinlessness that drew a drastic distinction between himself and the hypocritical Pharisees of his day. When light is cast upon darkness, what is in the darkness is exposed. For those who would trust him and hate their sin, they would be awakened by and strengthened by the light. For those who love the darkness, they would run from the light and hide in the darkness. But in many cases, they put on a really good show in the light. They cover their own darkness in the light and uncover their darkness only in the darkness. And because they uncover their darkness in the darkness, the darkness grows. They not only have become comfortable with it, they've become addicted to it. That is the condition of the false convert. The person who would truly love Christ, love the light, walk in the light, as John says in 1 John, embrace the light, shine the light. The person who would do that is the person who has recognized as a result of being exposed in the light to his darkness, and he has rejected his darkness. But the one who tries to walk both lives becomes good at it. He becomes skilled. And the tragic reality is that often there are few who would love those who do that enough to address their condition. And so the standard response by those who walk in private darkness 
but dabble with the light, protecting themselves with a spiritual sunscreen will be effective at calling the person who lovingly attempts to shine light on their darkness a legalist. Or, you know, you just think differently from everyone else. You know, I've talked to other people about this, and no one else seems to agree. Why? Because they're selectively going to people who will agree with them. That's the way the seared conscience works. Sin loves darkness. Over the years, I've uh, encouraged young men to take the door of their bedroom off the hinges, put it in the closet. I mean, literally. I'm not talking, I'm not using an illustration. Take the door off your bedroom. Put it in the garage. Expose yourself to the light. Any hint of darkness must be uncovered. Any hint, every hint, every expression. And the lack of willingness to do that will certainly result in massive frustration for the person who's trying to live both lives. He very likely will become better and better and better at acting. And the nicer a guy he is, the more people he will have fooled. The more frustrated he'll be, the less effective he'll be in actual ministry. You know, he might affect a lot of people in some sort of superficial, shallow way, but he'll never have any real impact on anybody because he's hiding the darkness. His conscience is seared. Verse 10 in our text this morning says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And this is a perplexing paradox. But it shows his grace. It shows his patience. That he himself, who is the creator of the world, came to his own, and they rejected him. That he would be willing to maintain his patience, maintain his kindness, maintain his love. As the creator of the world, the world was made through him. He is, in fact, the God of evangelism. He's the creator God, the creator of the world, and he came into the world subjecting himself as a defenseless baby to the wickedness and the darkness of the world as an evangelist. It says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Jews largely rejected Jesus. The Jews today largely reject Jesus. Did you know that in modern synagogues, they skip the weekly reading of the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture? Anybody know what chapter they skip? Isaiah 53. Why in the world do you think they would do that? Well, it's strategic. It's very purposeful. Because Isaiah 53 is clearly an evangelistic, messianic text that points to the human person of Jesus Christ that the Jews killed, according to 1 Thessalonians 2.15. Yeah, now, Romans actually put him on a cross and killed him. He died. They ran the spear in his side to close the deal, although he was already dead. 
But it was the manipulation of the, of the Jews that brought about his death. They rejected their own. They rejected the Jew. They rejected the Messiah. And yet he came to them as an evangelist. If you're looking closely in the book of Romans, you'll see the word jealous. Part of what the Lord was doing through the person of Christ going to Gentiles was to produce jealousy in the Jews. Why? That they would turn to him. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a text that's often misused. And some would say, you know, when you talk about accepting Christ into your hearts, they turn to this passage. Now, when they use that terminology, what they're saying is, this is what you must do, right? They're giving you a command or giving others a command. Today, accept Jesus. Accept and receive are two different words. I won't spend any time on splitting hairs with that. It's not really the issue. But it is an active verb. I remember when I first started studying this many years ago, and I discovered in studying this text that man actually is involved. It's an active verb, but it's not a command. So nowhere in the Scripture do you see a command for you or me or anyone in an evangelistic effort to command others to receive or to accept Jesus. It's not evangelism. Do you want to call people to Jesus? Of course. But there's more to it than just the person of Jesus. But the idea of accepting him, it's become a whitewashed, diluted catchphrase in our cultural Christianity that ultimately means nothing. And by the way, you get to define who Jesus is in most of those contexts. Define him as the Jesus of love and leave it at that. And so there is this superficial association with someone named Jesus. And the question one ought to ask is, how is that Jesus different from the Jesus we talked about last week, the Jesus of Mormonism, the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, where we spent most of our time? How is the Jesus that the person is you know, accepting into his heart Praying the sinner's prayer. How is that Jesus truly reflected in the Scripture? The book of John is crystal clear about who that Jesus is. But so often, there's no effort at all to explain the person of Jesus. And because there is some cultural awareness in most people's minds of the person of Jesus, then a pastor will simply say, don't you want Jesus? And he'll tell some emotional, manipulative story, and that person will come down crying. And they'll affirm that person by saying, praise God, you're a member of the family of God today. Isn't it great? There was no discussion of sin. There was no discussion of repentance. You know, many of you were baptized years ago in a situation where you had absolutely no idea what it meant to be a Christian, but you thought you had asked Jesus into your heart. In fact, you had prayed that exact prayer. And then, by God's grace, he brought someone who actually taught Scripture into your life. You were exposed to the gospel, and you said, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. How did I miss that? You missed that by the deliberate intention of someone who wanted to have more baptisms on his record. 
That's how. But where John says here, to all who did receive him, he's not saying that it's passive. He's actively involved. And that is certainly true. When you look back on the salvific experience of the person who has genuinely been brought into the family of God, it's volitional, it's willful. He's involved. But then John qualifies it. And I think it would be a shame in any context to read John 1.12 without reading John 1.13. It'd be a worse shame to read verses 10 and 11 without 12 and 13. Let's read 10 and 11 again real quick. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That'd be a bad place to end the chapter. That would be a sad conclusion. But it's not the conclusion. The reality is that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, don't think of this as chronological. And by the way, as you read through the book of John, you're going to see that it's not chronological. There are going to be times if you're expecting it to be chronological, you're going to go, wait a minute. I thought that already happened. Wait a minute. He's speaking about something that hasn't happened yet. It happens time and time again. It's not a chronological record. And in this case, this is not chronological. It's not a cause and effect relationship. He's not saying that for those who believed in his name, the result was that he gave them the right to become children of God. In other words, they believed and God gives them uh, this right to become children of God if they so choose to become the children of God. I read one really bad commentary that said that. It's not the idea at all. The fact is that they happened at the same time. The one who has been given the right to become a child of God is given that right by God, and he is a person who believes in his name. Now, let's talk about name for a moment. When we talk about name, the charismatic movement would tell you, just utter the name Jesus, and stuff happens. It's amazing. Well, that's silly. That's mysticism, and in some sense, it's witchcraft to believe that somehow when you utter words, it's Roman Catholicism. It's all over Roman Catholicism. You know, the Hail Mary, I had the privilege to explain what a Hail Mary is to one of my sons last night. It's a mystical incantation. You say certain words hoping that the result of the fact that those words are coming off your tongue is going to somehow magically result in something. Well, that's certainly not the case with a salvific experience. Those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, there's no dependency here upon the idea of receiving him, believing in his name, so that it would result in becoming children of God. The fact is they happen simultaneously. In the moment that God gives the right for a person to become a child of God, Allah, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, in the moment that God causes someone to be born again, he makes them a child of God. It's not that he's providing these options for him. But here's the qualification in verse 13. They were born, they were born, not of blood. Not by the blood of animals, right? Not by the sacrificial system. You don't get into the kingdom by engaging in animal sacrifice. It's not by the bloodline, right? He's already made that 
clear. Uh, just because you're a Jew, the Jews rejected him. So you're not born of God because you're a Hebrew. So it's not of blood, but it's also not of the will of the flesh. Listen to this as commentary from Romans 8 on the will of the flesh. Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, listen to this, indeed, it cannot. See, that should inform your thinking about John 1.12. Was it willful? Did he or she receive Christ willfully? Yes. But this is a troubling and important reality that you must give attention to. And that is the fact that in the flesh, which every single person is born into, it cannot overcome the flesh. It cannot submit to God. It does not submit to God's law because it cannot submit to God's law because it, in fact, is totally depraved. That's easy. It's not by blood. It's not by the will of the flesh. Here's the hard part. Not by the will of man. This is the hard part. Scripture clears it up for us. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. They go astray from, from when? The ninth grade, right? Adolescence, puberty? No, no, no. The womb. That's when wickedness is. Conception. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. See, that's the person who needs Christ, but that's everyone. Everyone is born into that condition. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart of man is sick. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us he's dead in his trespasses and sins. Oh, but those who are in Christ, they're made alive in Christ, not by self, but by Christ. It's Christ who makes dead people alive, not dead people who make dead people alive. Sounds a little silly to even say it, doesn't it? Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Do you remember the phrase in the 80s that became so popular, the seeker-friendly church? And yet Scripture says no one seeks after the Lord. Were those churches empty? No, they were full of people pretending to seek after the Lord. 
their pulpits were filled with men who were telling them, because you've sought after the Lord, you've found him. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. You see, John here says it's but of God. It's of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Okay, so let's go back for a moment to where John has said to those who did receive him, we've said it's a willful, volitional, wholehearted act. It's belief. John calls us. John mentions the word belief over a hundred times in the Gospel of John. It's a personal, volitional, willful, intentional, wholehearted reality. How's that possible then if you're born into total depravity? Because God gives the repentant sinner a new set of desires. He makes him alive. He causes him to be born again. You say, then why do we evangelize? Because we have the privilege to evangelize. And what do we tell people? Do we tell them, receive Jesus? No, we tell them, repent and believe in the gospel because that's the command given us in Mark 1. Repent of your sins, believe in the gospel. You say, well, how's that going to have any effect if they're totally depraved, if they're completely unable, completely dead? Because the phrase, but of God. It's not by blood. It's not by the flesh. It's not of man's will. It is of God by which people are born. Therefore, you can relax. You can relax and wholeheartedly evangelize knowing that God will save the elect. He will certainly save them because it is of him. And you and I have the blessed privilege of being proactively involved and we can rejoice in him because of what he does. John 3.1 helps us with this. In the life of Nicodemus, you know the story. He tells Nicodemus, a man must be born again if he were to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how is that possible? Would I return to my mother's womb? Jesus corrects him. He rebukes him gently by asking him, how do you not know these things? You know, you're supposed to be the teacher, the teacher. How can a man be born when he's old, he says. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's that volitional decision that that person makes under emotional and sentimental duress. When the stories are flowing and the tears are coming, and he says, yeah, I want that Jesus who's going to make my life better. But there's no call to repentance. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then this, if it's not clear yet, it will be now. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I can remember many times as a young athlete thinking, my word, it's so hot out here. I just really want this practice to be over. And then somewhere out of seemingly nowhere, a gust of wind and come and cool us off a bit. And we think, okay, maybe we can last a little longer. I didn't know that wind was on its way. I don't know where it came from. I certainly had nothing to do with initiating its presence. 
But that's how the wind operates, and the Lord uses that wind to illustrate the fact that God does what pleases him. Psalm 115, verse 3. God does what pleases him. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When a man is born into the family of God, it is an adoption. It is the work of Father God ushering someone into the family of God by the agency of the Spirit of God through the work of the Son of God. It's adoption. And if you were adopted as an infant or you have adopted someone, a child, or if you know someone who's done that, one of my best friends is adopted, you know that that work was a work of the parents, not the child well illustrates for us how this works. You've often heard me quote John Calvin who said, salvation is of the Lord. That's what it means. That's what it means to believe in reformed soteriology. You heard Steve read this morning from Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. How do you respond when someone challenges your life? How do you respond when someone accuses you of being a false convert? Do you point to your spiritual resume. No, 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 no. I look at these things I've done. I've served in this way. I've been doing it for 25 years. I have all these activities affirmed by leaders in the church. Well, I, Isaiah would call that filthy rags when used that way. We're called to good works. In fact, Paul says we're predestined for good works. You should be very, very committed to good works. But at the point where you're thinking that your good works somehow led to your salvation, that you, know, you would even be willing to say, you know, I did receive him, and therefore God gave to me the right to become a child of God. You just added the word therefore to that passage. That's not what it says. To those whom he caused to be born again, to those whom he gave the right to become children of God, they believed in him. Because of course they would believe in him, because now they're alive, they're in the light, and they want the light, they no longer are interested in darkness. In Luke 7, 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? And he's talking to them about John the Baptist. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Apparently, John was the greatest man who ever lived. But then Jesus says, those who are the least in the kingdom are greater than John. So the question is, how do you respond when someone asks you about your faith? Do you give them a a list of accomplishments? Or do you point to the light of the world? Do you point to the one who causes the darkness to be uncovered by the light? Are you defensive when someone questions your life? Would you die for Christ? Are you living for Christ? Would you prepare the way for him? See, that's what it comes down to. That you would be a person who prepares the way of the Lord. And at the point where someone says, you seem like a great Christian. Are you a great Christian? You should have no interest in the false acclaim that, that sometimes comes with being a faithful Christian. Your response should be, you know what, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But behold, the God who is light, who casts light on the darkness. Now, that's potentially offensive because many times when you're talking to a person who is not in Christ, well, not many times, every time, they've got lots of sin to hide. But they want you to think that they don't. They want you to think that they measure up. But you've been guilty and so have I. The question is not whether or not you or I measure up. The question is, are we a vehicle of the light of the world? such that we don't darken the message. We don't cloud it with any darkness hidden in our own lives. The best thing you can do to be a faithful evangelist like John the Baptist is to be a minimalist. I'm not telling you to empty your garage again. I'm simply saying be the person whose life is singularly devoted to the person of Christ such that you'll be devoted to people And that will be revealed in how you live, and you therefore will be that much passionate about the dark things in your life being exposed to the light, that you would confess and repent of them, and you would be used that much more effectively for his glory. Are you preparing the way for the Lord? Let's pray that we would, shall we? Father, we thank you for the rich joy of preparing the way for Jesus Christ. May our time this morning together in song, in worship, be just that. May it be a declaration of the person of Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.